0: The title of my sermon this morning is A Fear That fins Off Sin. A fear that fins off sin. The fear of the Lord is a mighty weapon for the believer. Amen? And maybe you didn't think of it that way. Maybe you think, the fear of the Lord, that sounds very Old Testament, very archaic. What good is it? Oh, friends, brothers, sisters, it is a great good. It is a great good. The big idea, the key to overcoming sin is awe. A-W-E-R, wonder, before the Almighty. Have you ever purchased something only to find out that it didn't do what it was programmed to do? That's really a bummer at Christmas time, right? You, You buy your kid this present they've been talking about. Christmas morning comes, they open the gift, they're excited, you take it out of the box, you put in the batteries, brand new batteries, and anticlimactic, nothing. No lights, no sound. It's not doing what it was programmed to do. Now, for many husbands, right, come on guys, there's user error. Your wife may say, well, did you read the instructions? And we say, what instructions? (laughs) There's instructions. But let's just say, hypothetically, you've followed the instructions, you've put the batteries where they're supposed to go, you've Turned this whatever it is on and nothing happens. We can safely assume that it's what? It's broken. It's broken. What were we made to do? Humans. Image bearers. What were we created and made to do? We were made to be in awe of God. We were made to worship God. We were made to love and obey God. But we don't. We don't. Therefore, we can conclude that we're what? We're broken. And the bad news is, and this is at loggerheads with really our culture, our culture would say, hey, if something's broken, you fix it, you, you, you just get on with it, you pull yourselves up, buy your bootstraps, and you do it. And the bad news is, and this is truth, that we're broken and we can do nothing to fix ourselves. No amount of effort or time will remedy our brokenness. <laughs> We need a helper. We need a mediator. We need Jesus. Amen? Well, I put this in your notes, kind of a structure, very simple to follow. Our passage, verse 18, the people of Israel behold the glory of God. And so our passage begins on this very promising note. God shows up in a big way. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's smoke. Israel, by grace, beholds the glory of God. Verse 19, the people of Israel speak to Moses. They tremble. (laughs) Verse 20, Moses speaks to the people. And then verse 21, this is really important. The people of Israel stand far off while Moses draws near to God. The main theme in our passage and a major theme in Exodus is fear, namely the fear of the Lord. And yet what we see is that there are two types of fear. There's a right fear and a wrong fear. There's a holy fear and a sinful fear. Now, in our passage, Moses addresses the wrong and sinful fear characteristic of Israel and calls them, and I believe calls us, to have a right and holy fear of God instead. In his book, Rejoice and Tremble, which we have in the book nook, I would Highly recommend it. It's really based on John Bunyan, the Puritan, his work, A Treatise on the Fear of God, which is a great book. You may struggle through it, though, right? The the language is old, but it's so good. So if you want to try to read Bunyan, you might want to bring in Michael Reeves' uh, book as kind of a a supplement. But again, it's in the book nook. But in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, Michael Reeves defines sinful fear as A fear of God that flows from sin. He writes, sinful fear drives you away from God. Sinful fear drives you away from God. Let me give you some examples. One, think of Adam in the garden post disobedience. After Adam eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, what do we see? Genesis 3.10, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. He's talking to the Lord. And I was afraid because I was naked And I hid myself. What did he do? Because he was afraid. He hid himself from God. Well, good luck with that, Adam. (laughs) We see something similar in John chapter 3, verse 20. This is the NIV. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Righteous fear or sinful fear. It's a sinful fear. Sadly, many of us understand this from experience. Let me give you a couple of examples. A child may fear his or her parent if the parent has a bad temper and is abusive. This fear will inevitably lead to resentment, even hatred. Such a fear causes that child to avoid their parent. And maybe you have a boss or you've had a boss who's always angry and they're looking for a scapegoat. Maybe they made bad decisions. They didn't manage things well. But again, they're not going to take responsibility. They're going to find someone and pour their wrath out on them. And that kind of boss is what? He's feared. And his workers tend to resent him, even hate him. At the same time... A subject of a kingdom may fear their king. A king known for his benevolence and love for his subjects. And this fear amounts to what? Reverence, awe, and allegiance. It leads to respect and love and adoration. Now, this sinful fear that we just talked about is evidenced by its results for Adam Adam's sinful fear, after he disobeyed God, he's trying to hide from God, it resulted in shame and the feeble attempt to hide himself from God. Here shortly, we're going to define a right and holy fear. But for now, suffice it to say that a right and holy fear of God denotes awe, A-W-E, and reverence before the matchless beauty and glory of God. Our passage this morning demands that we answer five questions. Number one, what is this fear, this right and holy fear? Number two, what does it do? Well, based on the title and the big idea, we can assume, and from the text especially, it fends off sin. But I'll impact that more. So number one, what is this fear? Number two, what does it do? Number three, what does it call for? What does this fear call for? Number four, how do we grow in it? If this is a good fear, if it's a right and holy fear, and if it's useful for fending off sin, shouldn't we want to grow in it? Of course. So how do we do that? And then number five, and I try to answer this question every week, how does our passage point to Jesus in the gospel? Let's not forget the context, right? Context is so important. Where are we in the book of Exodus up to this point? What's happened? Three things. Rescue Revelation, and I know you're expecting a third R, but you're not going to get it. Warning. Warning. The Lord, up to this point, has graciously rescued his people. Amen? They were slaves in Egypt, harshly mistreated. God shows up in a powerful, miraculous, glorious way, and he rescues them. He rescues them from slavery. He's revealed himself. God has revealed himself by providing miraculously for the physical needs of his people, right? Manna from heaven, quail. He shows up, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud to guide them, to lead them. And then we have a warning, and, and that's really our passage this morning. There's a warning, and this warning is necessary for Israel. To live with God as king demands that they and us align with the Lord and declare war on sin. Why? Why, if we're going to say, yes, God, you're my king, I'm going to align with you, why then must we declare war on our sin? Because as we've seen time and time again in Exodus and throughout all Scripture, God is what? God is holy. The Lord is holy. Therefore, his people must be what? What? They must be holy if they are to remain with him. Verse 18 the people saw and trembled. What was the issue with Israel here? This is helpful. They saw, what did they see again? Lightning, thunder, smoke. They see that and they tremble. What's going on with Israel? They were conscious of their unholiness and were thus fearful of coming into the presence of a holy God. They were aware of their sin and felt the weight of their unworthiness in the presence of their sinless Savior. And I believe at this point, Israel has a partial understanding of the Lord. It's much like Peter in Mark 8. If you're familiar with Mark 8, Jesus asked the question, So, boys, disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, I mean, people are saying all kinds of things, Jesus. Some say you're a prophet. Others, John the Baptist, raised. And then he turns the question onto them. Yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesperson, says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you're like, Peter, you got it, bro? Yes, that's it. Not so fast. Because then Jesus immediately fills out what it means for him to be the Messiah. He says, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer and die. Three days later, I'll be raised. And Peter doesn't say, yes, of course. He says what? He rebukes Jesus. Peter had a partial understanding. Israel's fear, again, this sinful, ungodly fear, led to despair and a desire to hide from God. Now, fear is the proper response to the Lord, but it must be a right and holy kind of fear. And we see this throughout Scripture. Again, examples abound. Let's go to Isaiah, or if you're British, Isaiah. Is David here? He's not, so not relevant. All right, Isaiah 6, 5, and I said, Woe, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, fear, reverence, awe. Oh, man, I love Luke. Yes, my son. But the gospel of Luke. Luke 5. Do you recall Peter's response to the miraculous catch of fish? This is so good. Let me read it for you. Luke 5, 4-9. to nine. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon... Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We've been fishing all night, Jesus, and we've caught nothing, empty nets. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's a good day on the lake, right? Come on, men. I can't either. I can't even believe it. It's crazy. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. This is an appropriate response. God's Glory begets fear and awe. Amen? It's that, wow, God, you're so big, you're so magnificent, you're so amazing. I'm in awe and wonder that you would save a worm like me. I deserve hell, but in Christ, I get heaven. Wow! That is the fear and the wonder we're talking about here. In Exodus 20, 18 to 21, the people of Israel and Moses are juxtaposed intentionally, we're we're to see this comparison, this contrast. As one brother says, what Israel dreaded was what Moses coveted. Right? What Israel dreaded, Moses coveted. Israel's ungodly fear caused them to flee from the Lord, while Moses' godly fear caused him to flee to the Lord. And this brings us to our first question. What is this fear? If you're taking notes, I I want you to write down two words. This is so helpful. Okay, so to what might we compare this right and holy and good fear that Moses calls Israel to embrace? The first word is love. 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 Love and fear? I mean... (laughs) Do you, t- do you tend to love what you fear? Charles Spurgeon, my boy. I don't know him personally because he's dead. But one day, I've read him. It's more of a one-sided relationship. One day I'll see him. Charles Spurgeon rightly, I believe, stated that the fear of the Lord is the sort of fear which has in it the very essence of love, and without which there would be no joy even in the presence of God. The Bible makes this same connection. This is really helpful, okay? So if you go to Psalm 145, and I should have put this on the screen. Not me, but I should have asked you guys. I'm sorry, Dave. Um, Just turn there with me if you don't mind. Psalm 145, 19 to 20. If you've been attending Wednesday night Bible study in here, I've been going through the Psalms, and I've taught you about different types of parallelism, right? This is common in Hebrew poetry where the author will state something and then he'll basically repeat himself using different language but making the same point. Why, why, why do we repeat things for emphasis to make a point, right? So here's an example of synonymous parallelism. Psalm 145, 19 to 20. I'm going to try to emphasize it with my tone, my voice, so you'll hopefully see the point here. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The one who fears the Lord and the one who loves the Lord are one and the same. These are parallel ideas. To fear the Lord is to love the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Then you love him. Do you love the Lord? Then you fear him. You're like, Chris, that's just one example. Oh, guys, <laughs> I can get carried away. And I made sure I didn't, but I'm going to give you a couple more. So, Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 5. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules. That you love. That you what? Oh, not there. I'm sorry. I, I skipped a line. Forgive me? Okay, good. <laughs> Donnie, just. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In this text, in these five verses, fear and love are brought together. This fear is to be expressed through love and adoration for the Lord. The second word is this. So the first word, when you think fear a right, holy, godly fear, is love. Those who fear love God. Amen? A right and holy fear of God is further associated with obedience. And this is seen in a broader context. After God gives Israel his law, his gracious and good instruction, he calls them to fear him. The idea here is that of obedience. And this is seen throughout the Bible. Here's another example. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and obey Him. Fear God and obey Him. Fear Him and love Him. Fear Him and obey Him, for this is the whole duty of man. Deuteronomy 6, two, That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping, by obeying all His statutes and His commandments. Here we see that Israel was to fear the Lord by obeying Him. How do we show that we fear God? By doing what? By Loving Him and obeying Him. Show me someone who does not love God nor obey Him, and I will show you someone who does not fear the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Now both of these ideas, love and obedience, are brought together together in Deuteronomy 10.12. And I, I put all these in your handout. These are important. So go back and read these. Listen to Deuteronomy 10.12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. What do we call that? That's obedience. To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. <laughs> Right there. Do you see it? To fear the Lord is to love and obey Him. Now, to fear the Lord is what? To love and obey Him. One final thing here before moving on to our next point. Love and obedience. The right and holy fear of the Lord is worship. This is worship. To love and obey is to worship. It's awe. To fear the Lord is to love and obey the Lord... And this is tantamount to worship. Now, maybe you're thinking, is that me? Does that describe me? How can one know that they fear the Lord? Is it important that we fear the Lord? Of course it is. How can one know? Well, here's some questions, maybe some diagnostic questions. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him? Are you committed to obeying him? Is your highest goal in life to worship him with your life? If yes, then you obviously fear the Lord. Now, what does it do? What does it do? What does this right and holy fear do? And what does it mean to fear the Lord? It is to love and obey him. Amen? Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. How does this work? This verse, I don't know if you were listening, but this verse, at first glance, is confusing. Don't fear, but fear. Wait, what? That's one of those, did I miss something here? Don't don't fear, but fear. What's happening here? What's going on? God's powerful presence, his glory, the thunder, The flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the smoke on the mountain caused the people of Israel to be afraid to tremble and to stand far off, to distance themselves from the Lord. It was Israel's unholy state, their sinfulness, that caused them to be afraid to tremble and to distance themselves from the Lord again. There's that comparison Israel, they distance themselves. Moses seeks to draw near. What did they fear? What was Moses commanding them not to fear? They feared death. They feared God's judgment. Do you know why? Because the last time they witnessed this, this phenomenon, the lightning and the thunder crashing, was back in Exodus 9 during the plagues. It was the plague of the hail which brought death and destruction. Now they're witnessing it, and what are they assuming? we about to die. The context is one of judgment. We're in trouble. But here's the problem with Israel. What did God promise them? I'm going to bring you to the promised land. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. At this moment, they failed to trust the Lord, and this would not be the first time, right? They failed to trust the Lord in his promises and instead ran for their lives. Theirs was a sinful fear, for it drove them away from the Lord. So the first use of fear is negative. What about the second? Verse 20, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Why? That you may not sin. Moses assures Israel that the awesomeness of God on display will not end in their demise. It is meant to test them so that they will not sin against the Lord. God wanted Israel to behold his glory, his power, his sovereignty, and to worship and adore him, to love and obey him in response. Why? Why? So that they would not sin against him. What have we learned about Israel up to this point? They've been more in awe of their circumstances and the circumstances of others than walking with the Lord and obeying him. I'm going to say this quickly, but I'll repeat it once. What you're in awe of has your heart, and what has your heart you worship, and that which you worship you resemble. One more time. That which you're in awe of, A-W-E, has your heart. And what has your heart, you worship. And what you worship, you resemble. The Lord is calling Israel to worship him, to love him, and to obey him, and ultimately to resemble him for his glory. This is what it means to fear the Lord. And this is our great weapon against sin. Here's how it works. Listen, who wants to fight sin Who wants to make war on their sin? Okay? When our hearts, when our hearts are turned toward the Lord, they are turned away from the world. Does that make sense? When our hearts are turned to the Lord, they are, at that moment, turned away from the world. Again, how does this work? Let me give you some practical examples here, some practice steps. Number one, in your notes, spend time in the Word. Spend time. Behold the Son of God in the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God, you'll become more like the Son of God, and that for the glory of God. Amen? Behold the Son of God in the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God, you'll become more like the Son of God, and this for the glory of God. The second thing seems really simple, but it works because God tells us to do it. Obey, obey the Lord. Spend time obeying the Lord. (laughs) Serve fellow church members. Do the one another's of scripture, right? Spend time evangelizing the lost. Give to the church. Again, this sounds so simple, but this is at the heart of fearing the Lord. Because to fear him is to love him and obey him. So get busy obeying the Lord. Spend your life obeying the Lord. There's no better investment of your time. Because when you do this, when you're obeying the Lord, you are turning your heart toward God and away from the world. Those who fear the Lord love the Lord. Therefore, they do not love the things of this world. Their affections are directed toward Christ and not their sin. Those who fear the Lord obey the Lord. Their heart's desire is to please the king by living for him. Those who obey the Lord are committed to coming under his word. They are not looking to the world for how to live, but to the word. And those who fear the Lord are continually being captivated by the gospel and not their sinful desires in the things of the world. They are in awe of God his character, and his work. The fear of the Lord fends off sin. We know that sin offends who? Who does it offend? It offends who? It offends the Lord. I hope we know the answer to that. Sin offends the Lord. And as Christians, this is the last thing we want to do. Amen? It's the last thing we want to do is offend our Lord and Savior. We fight, listen, we fight sin by fearing to offend our Lord and Savior. I love my wife. I love Haley. I love her so much. I'm so thankful for her. I would never want to offend Haley by dishonoring her, by sinning against her. It is my fear of offending her that helps me to fend off the temptation to sin against her, again, because I I love her, right? I love her. Listen, our love, our love for the Lord and our desire to obey him should be so great, so magnificently huge, that the thought of failing in these areas should terrify us because the honor and reputation of God is at stake and because We know his supreme worth. Now the sad truth is that our natural response to God is not this, is it? This is not our natural response to God because we're sinners. In fact, apart from grace, it's impossible to fear the Lord this way. So where does that leave us? Number three. Oh, this is good. It's my favorite point. What does it call for? What does this fear call for? Now check this out. Israel is responding to two things. How many things? Two things in our passage. First and obvious is the response to God's awesome presence, right? The thunder and the lightning and the smoke. They were literally terrified, they trembled. Second, and maybe not so obvious, is the law. They're responding to the law. What did God just give them? The Ten Commandments. Their response to dread follows the giving of the Ten Commandments. God's holy law and his holy, powerful presence elicits a response of fear and dread. One, they fear God's judgment due to the powerful display of his presence. And second, due to their inability to keep the law. Their unworthiness, their sinful state is quickly brought to light. And what does this call for? Are you ready? What does it call for? A mediator. A mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is someone who graciously stands in the gap to bring two parties together, specifically in our passage, an unholy people and a holy God. Again, a mediator is someone who graciously stands in the gap to bring together two parties. And who are those two parties? Unholy Israel and holy God. Verse 19. The people said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Philip Riken, This is such a good quote. I mean... It's obvious, but it's good. He says, one of the first things people do when they get into trouble with the law is to hire a what? A lawyer. I need a lawyer. I need a lawyer. (laughs) I'm not saying anything else until I can talk to my lawyer. I need help. I need a mediator, right? I'm in trouble. Especially if you know you're guilty. Guilty. And there's overwhelming, incontrovertible evidence. I need help! I need a mediator. I remember Pop, this was probably when I was 12, 13, I shot out with a pellet gun, our neighbor's big outside light. I don't know why I did that. I think it was, I I thought this shot was so far with my pellet gun, there's no way I can do it, but I was just drawn to it. Little sinner. And I shot the light out, first shot. That does not describe my hunting experience always, but... I immediately called for Pop to help me. And you walked me over to our neighbor and we talked and he was kind, but I was crying, I was so scared. Pop, help! I knew I was guilty too. And you were a great mediator that day. Thank you, Pop. You read that story? Okay. I don't make these things up. Okay, we don't talk about the train. I can't believe you said that. All right. They see torturing, they see, Israel sees God's incredible glory, his power. And then, listen, so they, they see the power, they see the glory, they hear the demands of the law, okay? Put those two things together. This God who gives the law is mighty, he's powerful, he's sovereign over the elements. That coupled with his law that they know that they know they can't keep, what does it result in? Terror? They realize they are undone, and they call out for help. They demand a mediator. Israel, I believe, in this moment, speaks better than they know. At this point, they are likely more concerned with their physical well-being than the honor and glory of God. And yet, here they find themselves in the hands of an angry God, and what do they do? They call out for help. They look for a helper, someone to go to God on their behalf, someone to speak to the Lord for them, and the Lord provides Moses a mediator. And here we see the gospel. Are you ready? Oh, here we see the gospel. God's glory, his amazing presence, and his righteous word bring to light our sinfulness, our unworthiness. He is holy, and we are not. He is righteous, and we are not. Therefore, like Israel, we too need a... We need a mediator. Only Christ. And we'll come back to this. Friends, this fear, this right and holy fear, is integral to our discipleship. It is something we must pursue and seek to grow in, but how? Number four, how do we grow in it? How do we cultivate this right and holy and godly fear of the Lord? Number one, practice steps, do theology. Do theology, yes, do theology. Learn the deep truths of God. Behold his holiness, his sovereignty, his omniscience in his word. Do theology. Pastor Aaron, you put in the book nook, Several good theological works by Sproul, Packer, MacArthur, Tripp, books on God's holiness, books on God's character, so that we can be wowed by our amazing God. Amen? Who wants to grow in their fear of the Lord? Do theology. I recently completed Stephen Nichols' biography on the life of R.C. Sproul. One of the great theologians of our generation died, went to be with the Lord in 2017. In this biography, I learned something very significant. I've read the book, The Holiness of God, but what I learned about Sproul in this biography is that the holiness of God colored everything, everything Sproul did. It colored everything he wrote. God's holiness was ever before him, and I believe that is what enabled that brother to finish his race so well. He feared the Lord because he was enthralled by the holiness of God. His growth in theology and understanding the deep truths of the Lord led to a greater awe and wonder of God. I've likened it to this. You're at this beautiful resort, and outside... There's this picturesque view. There's a waterfall flowing into a river. It's clear and blue and beautiful. There's deer. Don't get too excited, guys. But if the window's closed and the shutters are drawn, you can't take it in, right? But as it's opening, you see a little bit. And as it keeps opening, you see more. You take in more. And your awe and your wonder is increased. And that's what happens as we study God's word and we learn more about his character. This God is gracious. Yes, but he's also just. Yes, he's holy. He's righteous. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And you're like, whoa! Do theology. Number two, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Let me go to Bunyan. In his Treatise on the Fear of God, Bunyan wrote, John Bunyan, the the great Puritan, you probably know him best for what? What's that? Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, Who's read that? So good. Well, if you've you've conquered that, or maybe been conquered by it, uh, try his Treatise on the Fear of God. Really good. I read that with Danny recently. So good. Bunyan wrote, for if God shall come to you indeed and visit you with the forgiveness of sins... That visit removeth the guilt, but, and this is important, increaseth the sense of thy filth, and the sense of this, that God hath forgiven a filthy sinner, will make thee both rejoice and tremble. And that's where Michael Reeves got his title. Oh, the blessed confusion that will then cover thy face. Okay, that, that sounds good. I think I like it, but what does it mean? <laughs> let let me interpret that for you the cross does two things how many it does two okay one it cancels the believer's guilt yes that's worth the pulpit slap i don't care who you are it cancels the believer's guilt i scared some people i'm sorry i'm not sorry but i am sorry i guess yeah it provides rest in the work of jesus and yet simultaneously it brings to light our utter sinfulness the significance that when you really understand what happened at the cross that the sinless eternal son of god died for sinners like us the significance of the cross reveals the significance of our sin our vileness and this should cause us to tremble joyfully before the Lord. This should overwhelm us with the grace of God. Who's got chickens? I really like our chickens. I care for them. I feed them. I give them medicine if they need it because they give us eggs, right? I mean, I protect them. A varmint steps in our yard, he gone. But if a chicken is lost, and that happens from time to time, I've never lost one, though. Not yet. I know it's going to happen. But if a chicken is lost you may spend an hour or two looking for it. You're not going to call the police. You're not going to organize search parties, unless it's one of those like, prize-winning chickens worth $100,000. Then maybe you will. But normal farm chicken, lost, you'll spend an hour or two looking. You'll comb your property. Then you come to the realization, something got it. If a child is lost, now listen, if a child is lost, you're going to call the police, you are going to organize search parties. You're going to put out flyers. You're going to contact the news. Why? The efforts put forth reveal the significance of the need. How much more the cross of Christ? Nothing but the blood could rescue undeserving sinners like us. And this should lead to an eternity of awe and wonder at the goodness and grace of God. Final point is this. Final practice step. To grow in the fear of the Lord. Sit under the preaching of God's word. Let me tell you something. If your church attendance is spotty, if it's spotty, inconsistent, you will likely find that you are not growing in the fear of the Lord. Number five, quickly. How does our passage point to Jesus in the gospel? Three quick points here. Number one Jesus is the greater mediator. Yes, right? Jesus is the greater mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John 14.6, what did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the mediator. I love 1 John 2.1-2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. Like Moses, Jesus, the greater Moses, has entered into the presence of the Father on our behalf, making a way for us sinners to be with who? With God. Now, what makes Jesus a successful mediator? Number two, Jesus is the perfect son of God. Oh, like Israel, we suffer from a sinful fear of God. We are naturally in awe of the wrong things. We run from God instead of to him, but Jesus. Jesus obeyed his heavenly father, Perfectly. Jesus obeyed his heavenly father perfectly for us and now stands for us. And those he stands for, those who have trusted in him, get his righteousness. Amen? Oh, Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need a perfect life. Who provides it? None but Jesus. We need a mediator. (laughs) Jesus has gone to the Father on our behalf. He has entered into the divine presence, blazing a trail to God for us. And he now represents us, those who trust in him. He represents us before the Father. Amen? And number three, Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I will tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, right, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. God desires our what? Our holiness. He desires our obedience and love. In fact, our obedience is evidence of our love. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can love and obey him. So that we can fear him and thus fend off sin. Trust in Jesus. Call for help. Fear the Lord, meaning love and obey Jesus. Worship him. He is worthy for he alone can bring us into God's presence. Let me end with three diagnostic questions, and then I'm going to pray for us. Number one, are you most concerned with loving and obeying Jesus? Can you say it right now? Yes, Chris, I am right now most concerned with loving and obeying Jesus. Number two, do you fear dishonoring and offending the Lord? If you have, if we have a cavalier view towards sin then I promise you that you and me do not have a healthy fear of the Lord. If we have a cavalier view, meaning, ah, sin, Ah, we're all sinners, not that big a deal. If that's how we view sin, then we do not have a healthy view of the fear of the Lord. And number three is so important. Have you called out to Jesus for help? Have you called out to Jesus for help? Have you looked to him as your mediator? to make you right with God. You can do that today. Amen? You can do that today. Ask Jesus to save you from your sin and the eternal punishment that you and I deserve. Ask for help. Can't help yourself. (laughs) Can't save yourself. Only Jesus, the perfect, righteous Son of God, who is a mediator, bringing together two parties, sinful man, holy God, trust in him, For right standing with God, and then fear Him, love and obey Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of our hearts and lives. Help us to have a right and holy fear of you, to love you and obey you, not to get right with you, but because through trusting in Jesus, we are right with you. Father, may our lives be marked by a fear of you. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to do good theology, to study your word, to take in the deep truths of your word, to learn what it means that, God, you are holy and sovereign and all-powerful. Father, may we preach the gospel to ourselves daily, and may we be committed to gathering with your church every Lord's Day to come under your word to grow and to cultivate this right and holy fear of you. For your glory in our good and all God's people said in the mighty name of Jesus amen amen